0: This is Batman v. Batuman, a podcast for comic book news and reviews, all capped off with a summary and review of a Marvel book as I try to get to know that universe as well as I know DC. But for my first item, I'm going to review something recently published by neither company and based on two stellar 1980s movies from John Carpenter, Big Trouble in Little China and Escape from New York, written by Greg Pak with art by Daniel Bayliss. This miniseries was six issues long and came out last year and concluded this year. This comic sees the pairing of Jack Burton and Snake Plissken, played by Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China and Escape from New York. And Escape from LA. These 80s icons are forced together as Lo Pan, the ancient evil wizard from Big Trouble in Little China, messes with the space-time continuum and propels Jack Burton into the semi-dystopian future United States that Snake Plissken lives in. Lopan wants to avenge his defeat at Burton's hands, and sending his foe to an alternate reality as well as the future seems to have that desired effect. It's like Samurai Jack, but without a competent protagonist. Unfortunately, Lopan has more in mind than just dimension-swapping Jack Burton. It turns out that the disruption in the fabric of existence caused by jamming Burton into Snake Plissken's universe has potential consequences that would destroy that and possibly other existences. Despite their vastly different personalities and agendas, Pliskin and Burton join forces to fight Lo Pan, And there are a lot of fun adventures along the way. Writer Greg Pak clearly loves the two movies he's playing with here. There are a few obvious references as well as a couple of subtle ones that not only serve as the author tipping a cap, but also demonstrate the depth and untapped potential of these film universes that were criminally restricted to just three movies. Uh, I guess two and a half, since there's not much of anything from Escape from L.A. in here. The art by Daniel Bayliss is somewhat stylized, with a hint of cartoonishness, but not at the expense of details or scale. Bayliss especially shines in the second half of the book, as the sci-fi craziness ramps up, and we start to see stuff that never would have been possible in any of the three movies that inspired this comic. I picked up this comic because I love the movies it's based on, and that alone justifies reading six issues, even if they weren't very good. But this miniseries is quite good. It's funny, and it's well-paced. With everything developing smoothly and never relying on nostalgic hooks to keep readers interested. Pack writes both of the main characters well, sticking to their silver screen personalities, but probing their depth beyond the one-liners and exposition that made up most of their cinematic dialogue. Snake Plissken especially shines, as the character has way more to do to move the story forward than he did in either of the Escape From movies. I think my favorite thing about this series is that halfway through, there's a plot development that leads to a really goofy storyline that culminates in a lot of very funny, interesting stuff becoming seriously important to the main plot. The ending, specifically the very last page of the series, made me laugh out loud, and it's one of the better open-ended finales I've come across in recent years. I want to talk about some movie stuff before getting onto more comics, and it's a pretty busy time for movie news since my last episode. We've seen Spider-Man, Justice League, and Wonder Woman trailers, with Wonder Woman's preview the clear winner of Enticement. The upcoming Batman solo movie cemented a director in Matt Reeves. The most exciting news by far is that Firefly and Avengers visionary Joss Whedon is going to be writing and directing a Batgirl movie for the world to enjoy. I'm assuming that DC is going to give him a lot of creative control since Batgirl is not one of their top IPs in the DC Extended Universe, which means that we finally get to see what Whedon can do with the superhero property. I also saw Logan last month, and I'll share my thoughts about that in a moment. But I just wanted to say really quick about the justice league trailer at one point wonder woman says in a voiceover that quote they said the age of heroes would never come again end quote could that be a reference to the justice society of america man there are so many awesome rabbit holes to go down about that the justice society of america or the jsa were predecessors to the justice league of america or the jla And I mean literally and in the DC universe, because the Justice Society debuted and had its heyday before the introduction of the JLA in comics. It had a few overlapping members, but was rendered mostly obsolete after the JLA, and some of its key members don't appear in print much anymore. Warner Bros. and DC don't have any plans for a JSA movie yet, and the CW show Legends of Tomorrow is the only place for casual fans to experience the JSA at all right now. But we're probably going to get a few Wonder Woman movies, and if they're set in the past, like the upcoming Wonder Woman movie, could DC be planning a mini-franchise behind Wonder Woman, featuring her as the star and focus with the formation, rise, and fall of the JSA as sort of a low-budget Justice League, literally and figuratively, and even have them complementing her stories? You can introduce the world to characters that are mostly forgotten, and use that blank slate to tell all kinds of cool stories and even have the characters meet glorious, tragic ends since they're all going to be out of the picture in the present day of the DC Extended Universe other than Wonder Woman. I have no idea if any of this will even come close to happening, and DC hasn't announced any new projects other than Batgirl recently, so this is all just my excited speculation, but it sure would be a lot of fun and involve some cool world building, both of which the DCEU needs. Anyway, like I said, I saw Logan last month, the last Wolverine film about his final adventure. Logan was almost great. It felt a little small in some ways, story and scale-wise, and that was mostly to its benefit, but it also kept the movie from really breathing. There were more than a few comic book logic moments that every superhero movie has, and the second half of the movie was less efficient in its storytelling and impact than the first. But aside from that criticism, the acting was superb at every level, and even if some of the characters had questionable motivations, the actors made it work. I legitimately respect Hugh Jackman as an actor after this, and the last frame of the movie was the perfect final shot to his tenure with this character. I think the rave reviews and hype I experienced going in might have inflated my expectations, not for the quality of the film necessarily, but for the experience overall. It felt more like an indie thriller than a superhero movie. If any of you have seen Jeff Nichols' film Midnight Special that came out last year, with Michael Shannon as a dad trying to escape the government with his possibly superpowered son, I think you'd agree with me that Logan felt very similar both in style and plot elements to that film. I'm not saying that in a bad way, they were both very good and they both went in very different directions for their third acts, but I guess I'm trying to say that I expected something more unique and pioneering, if not groundbreaking. Logan was pretty damn good, but it won't end up being a landmark superhero movie. I just picked up the 8th and ninth issues of Frank Miller's Dark Knight 3, The Master Race. Miller is co-writing Dark Knight 3 with Brian Azzarello, and it's illustrated by Andy Kubert, after Miller wrote and drew the first two books, The Dark Knight Returns and Dark Knight Two: The Dark Knight Strikes Again. The reason Miller is only co-writing the latest and probably not last entry in The Dark Knight Saga is due to the poor reception of The Dark Knight Two: The Dark Knight Strikes Again over its three issues in 2001 and 2002. Published a decade and a half after the critically acclaimed slash game-changing slash easily top five Batman book of all time, The Dark Knight Returns, the Dark Knight Strikes Again is certainly short of great. Parts of it are actually bad, and Miller's experimental mix of digital and over-the-top-yet-undetailed sketch style didn't help. The book looked and read like it had been rushed to meet deadlines by a creator who was forcing his work. It took another decade and a half for DC to commission a third entry and gamble on a trilogy. They approached Miller with conditions, namely that Miller stepped down as sole artist and writer. But is Dark Knight 2 actually as bad as people say? I just reread it for the first time, and while I'm still not converted, I found a lot more to enjoy the second time around. Maybe it's because I was reading it without the boyish optimism of a virgin reader hoping for another classic like The Dark Knight Returns. That sounds like a left-handed compliment, but considering how the cruel world of Frank Miller's Dark Knight is devoid of optimism, maybe cynicism is the right mindset to approach this book. I'm not going to review Dark Knight 2, and I'm not going to spoil anything story-wise, but I would like to offer a few defenses and compliments for The Dark Knight Strikes Again. For those of you who've already read it, maybe I'll convince you to try it again. Otherwise, I hope this discussion nudges you to consider taking a chance on an okay sequel with some big ideas. To begin, let's explore the real-world context that affected this book, and I'm referring to something that we are all familiar with because we promised that we would never forget. The terrorist attacks of September 11th had a huge impact on our country and the world, and they also had a huge impact on Frank Miller, who wrote the first issue of Dark Knight 2 before 9-11. Miller, already more curmudgeonly than the average comic book writer, went slightly off the deep end after 9-11. He changed his plans for the second and third issues, and it continued to affect him beyond this book. A decade after 9-11, Miller asked DC to publish a story he wrote about Batman going to the Middle East to kill terrorists. When DC declined, Miller changed the main character but kept the project's name. Holy Terror came out in 2011, and was even more poorly received than Dark Knight 2 The Dark Knight Strikes Again. But what we're talking about right now is how 9-11 pushed Miller to make changes to his Dark Knight 2 plans. Not that the first issue was perfect, but the final product is a disjointed book that tried to do too much from a creator who was exhausted and under pressure from his publisher and himself. Okay, so you're probably wondering when I'm going to get to the part where I defend The Dark Knight Strikes again. And I hope the extra context helps, because while I might not agree with Miller on politics, I sympathize with the unimaginable difficulty he put himself through on this project, even before 9-11 threw him through a loop, and made it even harder to please the fans, DC, and himself. Miller was scattered, and The Dark Knight Strikes Again reflects that, with so many fascinating subplots and mind-blowing ideas that are mostly unresolved or rushed to conclusion. But without spoiling The Dark Knight Strikes Again, I want to highlight some awesome ideas and concepts that made this book worth reading. First, the Justice League. While we saw a couple of these folks in Dark Knight Returns, Miller finally gets to play with an array of characters that brighten up the Dark Knight universe with their goofy Silver Age antics. The only downside is Miller's use of the question, a faceless detective, a conspiracy theorist on steroids, who pulls a Rorschach from Watchmen in this book, He scribbles weird libertarian thoughts in his diary as a form of narration. It's an ugly homage in part because Miller makes the question just come off like mediocre Watchmen fan fiction and doesn't let the character come to life. This is a bummer because Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns both came out in 1986, and Rorschach was actually based on the question. Anyway, the rest of the Justice League shines, especially Green Lantern, Plastic Man, The Flash, and The Atom. The intros to these four characters in The Dark Knight Strikes Again are four of my favorite scenes in the book. The second cool thing about Dark Knight 2 is a cool subplot involving a lab experimenting on orphan toddlers to mutate them. The kids, with wires in their heads and deformities, are some of the most striking pieces of imagery in the whole book, but they barely end up being in two pages of the book, and Miller doesn't do anything interesting with them before or after that scene. Next, let's talk politics. While most of Miller's politics haven't aged well, Some of it is weirdly prophetic. The expression's fake news and alternative facts belong to the present day, but Miller explores these themes within a restrictive, authoritarian American government. The icing on his Nostradamus cake is the Secretary of State, who used to run Exxon and is named Buzz. Pretty close for a 16-year-old book. And while he overuses the Dark Knight Returns talking head slash news interview gimmick in this book, some of Miller's funniest writing comes from those scenes. Moving away from ideas for a moment, I applaud the scale of Dark Knight 2, even though Miller didn't make the best use of it. The Dark Knight Returns was a Gotham story, and The Dark Knight Strikes Again is a United States story. It takes place across the cities of the DC universe and the nation's capital, with events on a national scale. Also, DC has always had strong sci-fi elements, and Miller uses this book to introduce them into his Dark Knight universe. The villains are more of a mixed bag. Miller has a dumb Joker subplot build up over the first two issues, then ignores it completely until the final few pages of the third issue. Oddly enough, it's the Superman villains that shine here, despite their aesthetically unpleasant and continuity-breaking appearances. And finally, I want to highlight Miller's use of Candor. Not candor like Honesty, but Candor with a K, the Kryptonian city that was shrunk and placed in a big jar by Superman villain Brainiac before Krypton imploded. The Bottled City comes up a few times, and is yet another of Miller's undercooked but pretty good ideas scattered throughout this book. Even Miller felt that way, because Candor becomes a major focus in Dark Knight Three: The Master Race. Anyway, I hope some of what you just heard makes you curious to read or reread The Dark Knight Strikes Again. It's not essential unless you're a completionist, but it's not as bad as people say it is. And most of my criticisms are that it's underdeveloped, not unsalvageable. With one issue left to go in The Dark Knight 3 The Master Race, I'll have a nice long review of that in my next episode, and hopefully Miller and Azzarello will find a smoother way to conclude the soon-to-be Dark Knight trilogy. Alright well with this, my 18th episode, I've read 18 Marvel books. I'm definitely not an expert yet, but I think I know enough of the characters and major events to no longer honestly call my summary and review of a Marvel book an uninformed Marvel review. So with the qualifier that I'm still pretty much a neophyte outside of 18 books and some movies, here's the next item off my Marvel list. For this episode, I read X-Men Curse of the Mutants by Victor Gishler with art by Paco Medina. This book is six issues long and came out in 2011. Curse of the Mutants takes place in San Francisco where the X-Men appear to be headquartered at this point in their history. The story begins in Union Square where dozens of people are enjoying a sunny day, including the X-Men Jubilee. A huge dude in a leather bodysuit, literally head-to-toe bodysuit, gets up, walks into the middle of Union Square, opens his suit, and explodes, killing some, injuring others, and concussing Jubilee, who's also covered in the terrorist's blood. This sounds like the kind of book Frank Miller might be into. Jubilee gets evacuated to the X-Men base on an island just off the coast of San Francisco called Utopia. It's basically like if the X-Men retrofitted Alcatraz. Professor X doesn't seem to be around, and Cyclops is running the show, trying to figure out who was behind the bombing while Jubilee gets taken care of. She tells the mutant doctors that the guy who blew himself up didn't have a bomb, but his whole body blew up when sunlight touched his flesh. The curious case gets curiouser as an enormous man-bat creature emerges near Fisherman's Wharf and starts eating everyone around him. Meanwhile, Jubilee's doctors discover the blood that she was covered in from the exploding bomber contained a virus, a unique, specifically manufactured virus that is slowly transforming Jubilee into something unclear, but pretty clearly sinister. No one has said the V word yet, but it's safe to say that something vampiric is going on. Other people who were infected by the exploding blood start feeling a weird desire to congregate in a park. Jubilee's mutant DNA is slowing down her infection but all of the other sick folk meet in the park, along with the man-bat and a couple of other vampires. The vampires' plan is set in motion as they start biting and enslaving the hypnotized crowd. The X-Men start scouting San Francisco for more signs of whoever bombed the city. Wolverine and Angel lead these efforts as Angel gets a bird-eye view and Wolverine has a super sense of smell. They stumble into a street gang that turns out to be a group of vampiric familiars. Their leader goes one-on-one with Wolverine and gloats about the Lord of Vampires coming to San Francisco to start changing the world. Wolverine says a grumpy one-liner and slices her head off, but doesn't feel victorious as the X-Men discover a large blood bank of human victims strung upside down and drained of their fluids to feed a vampire army. Back on Utopia Island, the mutant doctors are researching ways to cure Jubilee and find out that the virus is causing her to crave blood the same way a pregnant woman might crave a specific food. Now the X-Men start fearing the worst, namely the worst vampire of all, Dracula. They ask the field team to bring back a live vampire for cure research purposes. Wolverine and Colossus are ambushed by a group of powerful, gargoyle-looking vampires. They manage to throw one outside and wait for the sunlight to do its thing, but the vampire flies up to a rooftop unscathed. Our heroes chase it, but Storm, the mighty weather mutant, strikes it with a bolt of lightning. Unfortunately, this eliminates the vampire as a potential research specimen, and the X-Men head back underground to try again. Half a dozen gargoyle vampires swoop down, and the X-Men are about to be overwhelmed when the most powerful vampire-hating mutant of all slices and dices his way to their rescue. It's none other than Blade, finally making his debut on this podcast. It appears that he and Logan know each other, and they expositionally catch up. Blade explains that the vampires have been developing light-bending technology that allows them to be in direct sunlight. More importantly, he tells the X-Men that Dracula can't be responsible for the attacks on San Francisco because Dracula is dead and Blade killed him. Time is starting to become an issue for Jubilee, and the vampire virus is really messing with her now. She feels a weird urge to leave Utopia, and even has an insatiable hunger, never a good sign. And it turns out that she's infinitely more important to the vampires than the other infected bombing victims who've been turned into vampiric familiars. Lord Zarius, son of Dracula and leader of the vampire clans, has united the world's vampire families for the first time and has his sights set on San Francisco. He knows about the X-Men and wants Jubilee to help him turn the other X-Men into vampires, which would make his army unstoppable. Jubilee does her part, knocking out her doctors and escaping Utopia. Her strange urges drive her to the same park as the other victims as the X-Men and Blade continue discussing plans of action. To figure out just how screwed they might be, the X-Men recalibrate Cerebro, Professor X's mutant detector, to find vampires, and it turns out that they're super screwed as Cerebro highlights thousands of vampires around the city. Jubilee makes matters worse by getting captured by Zarius and his vampire flunkies. The X-Men discover her absence and start getting into desperate measures. Emma Frost suggests that they resurrect Dracula in hopes that he takes out Lord Zarius for usurping his vampiric throne. Blade intelligently points out that you don't dig up Hitler to get rid of Saddam Hussein, but Wolverine counters with the magnitude of Zarius' threat, and the fact that sometimes a Hail Mary play is the only play available. The X-Men need a Hail Mary, as Zarius bites Jubilee and waits to see if the vampire curse can affect mutants. Logan takes it upon himself to rescue her, and sets off. The rest of the X-Men go about resurrecting Dracula, which entails putting his head back on his body, then removing a stake from his heart. Vampirism does the rest, including reattaching Dracula's head. The X-Men try negotiating with him, but Dracula refuses to commit to helping them, instead demanding to be released and left to his own devices. Devices which may or may not include killing his son. Meanwhile, Wolverine is doing a decent job of eliminating the vampire army. He slays dozens of them in Hugh Jackman Van Helsing style before reverting back to Hugh Jackman Wolverine style. His need to rescue Jubilee, the responsibility he feels towards his fellow X-Men, drive him through a bloody gauntlet until he finally finds her, hanging upside down over a silver dish, slowly filling with her blood. Logan cuts her down and tries to wake her up. Jubilee is disoriented but warns Logan that someone's behind him. Wolverine spins to defend her, but Jubilee sinks her teeth into his neck betraying her protector and infecting him with vampirism. Zarius and his cronies tie Logan up and wait to see if the vampire curse could overpower his healing factor. Wolverine manages to break out of his chains, but instead of spilling blood, he requests a big glass of it. The X-Men are spread thin trying to protect San Francisco from vampires. Despite their success and Blade's help, the number of vampires is too daunting and Cyclops decides to contact Zarius. By some sort of super skype that works on an island and in a sewer to appeal to any sense of decency that a vampire might have before their battle got too costly. Zarius counters by asking the X-Men to willingly become vampires, and taunting them with the revelation that Wolverine has become a vamp kid. Zarius sends most of his vampires to attack Utopia and kill or capture the X-Men. Wolverine is in charge of the assault and hangs back as the initial waves of vampires are broken on Utopia's defenses and the X-Men with unbiteable skin like Colossus and Emma Frost. Old Vamp Logan joins the fray, quickly overpowering his pals before Cyclops hits him with a secret weapon. Apparently, the X-Men got all paranoid when they first found out about the vampires, and Cyclops had Wolverine injected with body-shutdown nanobots in the unlikely event that the big guy got vampired up. The nanobots eat away at the vampire genes, and the Logan we all know and love is back. The X Men, minus a still vampiric Jubilee, turn the tide and decimate Zarius' vampire army. Reeling from the defeat, Zarius is trying to come up with a plan B when his dad shows up to restore himself as the rightful king of vampires. Zarius's lieutenants, having lost faith in their boss, are okay with the reversion of hierarchy. Dracula and Zarius fight one on one for the leadership of their people. As the X-Men crash the party and seek out both vampires. Jubilee looks on in horror as Zarius is decapitated, but her X-Men friends and Blade arrive just as Dracula notices her. Dracula tells Cyclops that he fulfilled their bargain by slaying Zarius and he is happy to part ways, leaving San Francisco and the mutants alone for the time being. Blade is appalled to see the mutants being okay with this and attacks Dracula. As he lunges towards his foe, a blast knocks him aside, and a bemused Dracula thanks Cyclops for interfering. He leaves them with the ominous observation that he is now king of a united vampire world, something that he's never had before. The X-Men take Jubilee home to Utopia, where she goes cold turkey on human blood. Blade warns the X-Men that vampirism is permanent, and pulls out a wooden stake. Wolverine almost kills him, but they tensely part ways, as Blade reminds them all that, while Jubilee is alive she will continue to be a problem for the X-Men. But Cyclops is in charge of the X-Men now, and has an uneasy faith that no matter what happens to Jubilee, she'll always be a mutant first. Dun, dun dun Well, that was interesting. Didn't expect vampires when I picked up Curse of the Mutants. I think the most exciting thing about this book is that Blade showed up. For some reason I didn't think of him when the vampires appeared, I guess because I don't associate him with his parent company but Marvel needed him to round out this book. The story was kind of interesting, and I enjoyed the development of Jubilee and Wolverine's vampirism, but I didn't like the twist ending of Cyclops and co. preemptively injecting Logan with nanobots in the event of him becoming a vampire. That's way too deus ex machina, even by comic book logic or my own middling standards. Victor Gishler wrote the characters pretty well. Everyone had a distinct voice that fit what I knew of the character or helped me understand who they were early on. He paced the story well, and even made the vampire elements rise above what I expect from vampires in pop culture. Paco Medina, the artist, draws action really well, and there are some delightfully violent scenes that he conjured up perfectly, but the book does have some issues that diminish its quality. This book came out in 2011, but it feels more like something out of 2001. Some of Gishler's dialogue is anachronistically clunky, and Medina's art is like slightly less stylized but still sexualized Rob Liefeld. Occasional goofy dialogue and occasional goofy drawings aren't deal breakers, but they did take me out of the experience a few times and make the book feel dated. And, as I mentioned earlier, that twist ending with the nanobots was really stupid. But with all of that in mind, I'd still watch the hell out of this if it were ever made into a movie. Alright, that does it for this month's Batman v. batman If you have any questions, criticisms, or suggestions for my next Marvel review, let me know on Twitter at Batman v. Batuman. If you like the music, check out more like it at seedmol.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening. See you next month. I am pretentious. I am always right. I am Batuman.